0: chapter 2 part d of guide to the study of the christian religion this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this reading is by john sherman guide to the study of the christian religion edited by gerald bernie smith chapter 2 part d the development of Christian doctrine part 1 the creative social mind occidental civilization has resulted from the genetic succession of several creative social minds these social minds have been the outcome of social experience of various sorts christianity as a developing religion by which men of different grades of culture have sought to gain help from god in accord with the teachings and persons of jesus christ has appropriated and built into itself these dominant social minds which in turn have been expressions of creative social forces as social experience varies new intellectual concepts result Doctrine-making, when analyzed, is the group formulation or modification of inherited religious beliefs in accordance with these new concepts, for the purpose of vindicating and directing religious self-expression. Generally, such formulation gives birth to but one doctrine in an epoch. To put the matter more distinctly, theology is the outgrowth of the needs of religion for intellectual expression, wherever religion is practised it is forced to meet the needs set by the social life of those to whom it ministers in the nature of the case the satisfaction of these needs as well as the needs themselves are determined by the habits and thoughts and social activity of any given epoch Religious doubts or religious controversies, which have been the usual occasion of doctrinal growth, have in general sprung from the tension of soul, resulting from the failure of inherited religious formulas to meet needs set by the dominant and creative social minds. The doctrines of Christianity have thus been religiously functional rather than absolute, and the development of Christianity has thus inevitably been a social process. The fact that in the midst of these successive social minds, Christianity has proceeded in a definite direction, and has bred true to itself, is an argument that a generic but not absolutely and finally formulated Christianity is to be found by a study of the successive periods of creative theological thought. Such periods are epics of that genetically related creative activity which has expressed itself in the successive social minds which have constituted the continuous stream of Western history. A nation without social development naturally has no developing theology. The relation of doctrine to the creative social mind from which both the new religious needs and their satisfaction sprang is not quite as simple, however, as what has been said might imply. While a social mind has been formulating the particular doctrine demanded by the same new creative social impulse, it has usually accepted and defended other doctrines which it has inherited from a long line of predecessors. Thus new doctrines appear only at what might be called the tension points of intellectual and social progress. These however are not, strictly speaking, inventions, but the organization of truths already held implicitly in the Christian religion, much as elements of a developing civilization are implicit in its fundamental genius. Quite as important is the further fact that just as some persons have alternating personalities, so most epochs have more than one social mind. In fact, much of the progress of history is due to the conflict between these social minds, each of which has tended to shape up some characteristic religious expression these counter-social minds express the social experience of minorities unproductive of immediate historical development when expressing themselves in theology they have given rise to the opposition theologies which have been sidetracked into the limbo of heresy the fact that the developing system of christian teaching which we call orthodoxy persisted was not due to any superficial causes like persecution or state support These indeed were agents, but the fundamental explanation why one doctrine, rather than another, triumphed during moments of creative struggle is that it served better than the other, the needs begotten by the continuously developing and dominant social experience. Could, for example, true progress in social development any more than in theology ever have resulted from social minds which could have been satisfied with Gnosticism? or the essential polytheism of Arius, or the atomistic philosophy of Pelagius. Counter-theologies have been valuable, because they have each recognized something not included in the theology which ministered directly to the dominant social mind, but, despite common belief regarding heresies, they have never become future orthodoxy. These theologies failed to function directly in the actual courses of development of both society and Christianity. At the best, they were of influence only as contributing causes of new social minds. These counter-theologies, or heresies, failed to persist for two reasons. They did not tend toward the increasing knowledge of reality, and, however much influence they may have had in affecting the course of the development of orthodoxy, they have not satisfied the religious needs set by the dominant social minds which determined the main course of history. Only those Christian conceptions for which the genetically connected dominant social minds of successive periods have shown affinity have given the real content to our growing religion in them as by a sort of mendelian formula the generic quality of christianity is to be found dominant traits alone have persisted in vigor two the creative social minds which have made occidental history the creative social minds which have made occidental history during this christian era are the semitic which gave us the new testament and the messianic drama the Hellenistic, which gave us ecumenical dogma, the Imperialistic, which gave us the doctrine of sin and the Roman Church, the feudal, which gave us the first real theory of atonement, the National, which gave us Protestantism, the bourgeois, which gave us modern evangelicalism, and the modern scientific democratic mind, which must give us the theology of tomorrow it is not without importance that each of these dominant social minds has had its particular place of birth. Syria, the Hellenistic territory, Western Europe, Germany, England, and America have each been the home of one of these social minds which have resulted in doctrinal development. And it is not improbable that the Western movement of our civilization may yet add still another phase of social as well as doctrinal development, the cosmopolitan fraternal, which, so far as the Church is concerned, will find its birthplace in Asia. A. The Contribution of the Semitic Social Mind to Christian Theology Christianity considered theologically Perpetuates the transcendental politics of the Hebrew. Sovereignty and subjects, law and judgment, punishment and rehabilitation, these great rubrics, which express the presuppositions controlling the highest social activity of the Hebrew, became the skeleton of their religious thought. Christianity springs genetically, however, not directly from the Hebraism of the Old Testament, but from the Judaism of New Testament times. Its principles are those of Hebraism re-expressed in the Messianic Hope how far christianity at its start was from being a philosophy appears not only from the teaching of jesus but also from the expressed hostility of paul to what he called the wisdom of this world a hostility which was vigorously urged by such church fathers as tertullian the latter's treatise the prescription of heretics is a plea for the supremacy of a dramatic theology, as over against a philosophy. But neither Paul nor Tertullian was apart from other Christian writers. The theology to which they held was the limit within which philosophically-minded Christians, like Justin and Origen, debated. This theology epitomized in Regulia Fidei, was nothing more nor less than a transcendentalized theory of that conception of government which was an unconscious but determinative presupposition of the entire social life of the ancient world and its schema was the messianism which had been brought over from judaism Messianism undoubtedly had deep roots, which must be traced back into the hopes and mythologies of ancient nations, particularly those of Babylonia and Persia, whose civilizations had affected Judaism. But there is no chief root that does not finally end in social practice. However great or, as it seems to me, more probable, however slight, may have been the role of the Gilgamesh epoch in Jewish Messianism, it is colored by the political habits of the age in which it arose. Similarly, in the case of the influence of the Persian religion, whatever may have been the relative importance of the reciprocal influence of Mazdaism and Hebraism, the outcome in either case was a religious hope that involved transcendental politics the jewish messianic hope passed through two stages both formally political in the first the jews believed that yahweh would re-establish through ordinary methods the jewish state as supreme over all its enemies and in the second they hoped that the same triumphant nation would be established not in the ordinary sense of history but by the miraculous intervention of god through his anointed messianism is as truly political in its transcendental as in its political revolutionary stage a sovereign god who seeks to establish his kingdom by the conquest of the rival kingdom of satan a vicegerent through whom the divine sovereign works and who is to conquer the hostile kingdom and establish the kingdom of god in which the law of god is to be established a new age in which God is to be the supreme sovereign and his people supremely blessed, while the arch-antagonist is bound and punished with his followers, a day of judgment in which the triumphant king meets out the fate of all mankind in accordance with its loyalty or disloyalty. These are the fundamental elements of the program of messianism. The resurrection simply assured the disposition of all mankind in the final world order. It requires no argument to show that this schema is fundamental to Christian theology, and that it is indeed the organizing principle of theology as it subsequently was developed in the Western world, and less imperfectly, in the Greek Church. Whatever else philosophy may have accomplished in the development of doctrine, it has never obscured these fundamental rubrics which were carried over into religion from the social presuppositions on which the ancient civilization was ultimately based indeed christian theology as an organized system might be described as the philosophical expansion of a political dramatic scenario in which the future and present relations of men and God are set forth in terms drawn from the political experience of the Jewish people. b. Some Non-Political Elements in New Testament Thought At two points, this schema is modified in the New Testament and by later writers by the addition of non-political elements, which are really the most essential in Christianity. There is first the spiritual experience of the Christian. This is in turn twofold. Those phenomena which are called in the New Testament the gifts of the holy spirit have never been thoroughly worked into orthodoxy and have always been emphasized among groups for instance the montanists who have been to a considerable degree regarded as heretical and the reason is very plain the general schema of historical orthodoxy is transcendental politics redefined by the use of other elements of social experience, and rationalized in detail by current philosophy. In such a schema, there is no room for mysticism. That must always be extra-orthodox. Yet, the second sort of spiritual experience, the actual transformation of the believer by God, has always been emphasized by theology. In Greek Christianity, this element of transformation played a very large role. We see it in the recapitulation by Jesus so attractive to Irenaeus, and even more in the conception of salvation as the theizing of human nature into incorruption. At one time, transformation even bade fair to become the organizing principle for an entire system. But the development of Greek theology was arrested in its Christological epoch, and Western theology became so far committed to a forensic outline of teaching that the saving transformation of the believer was attached to the idea of the church and its sacraments instead of being allowed to organize Christian teaching into a vital system. Yet transformation has always persisted in Western theology as a sort of parallel orthodoxy. If it, instead of the messianic drama, had become really central in orthodoxy, doctrinal development would have been far more vital and less authoritative. In modern theology, this spiritual and vital element is assuming a new importance and constitutes one of the great constructive principles for a theology which shall be more in accord with the presuppositions of modern social life so radically different from those expressed in absolute monarchy. Completely outside of the inherited messianic drama, it is essential to Christianity itself. A second element, too little used by Orthodoxy because it also lies outside of the politico-religious drama of Messianism, is the experience of Jesus himself. All theologians, it is true, have generalized this element of historical Christianity in the same proportion as they have not been dominated by the transcendental politics of Messianism. But the really Personal life and significance of Jesus have lain outside of the norm of doctrinal development. Indeed, Christology has never been wholeheartedly interested in Jesus, even though it has devoted itself to his natures and person. The reason is simple. In the messianic schema, the Christ is essentially functional. He must perform the work of God's vicegerent. For such an office, his earthly life was of small significance. Even his resurrection, which, if once accepted as historical, has a meaning wholly independent of the messianic argument, has been made contributory to the proof of his divine office. The chief interest in the anti arian movement out of which orthodoxy rose, lay in the desire for assurance that the Savior was divine. The ethical implications in the belief were all but overlooked. Yet in the actual experiences of the historical Jesus, with their wealth of religious and moral appeal, there was overlooked another organizing principle which modern theology recognizes but to which historical orthodoxy was blind because such experiences were not readily systematized in the Messianic drama theology. The reason that the Messianic drama became the veritable column, so to speak, of Christian doctrine is not far to seek. It is primitive Christianity itself, minus only these experimental elements. The New Testament and Other early Christian literature make it plain that the conquest of Christianity was due primarily to an enthusiasm born of the belief that the entire messianic program was to be immediately fulfilled, and that those who accepted Jesus in his messianic capacity would participate in the joys of the literal kingdom which he was to establish. The beliefs with which Christianity started on its conquest of the Roman Empire were utterly foreign to philosophy, and were as dramatic as the social experience in which the Christians shared. Recall only the impassioned hopes and arguments of Ignatius. To think of Christianity as originally an ethical, sociological, or philosophical movement is to misinterpret it completely. The elements of its hope were concrete, and their unity was the unity of a drama. Therein was Christian theology in outline. C. The Hellenistic Social Mind When primitive Christianity entered into the Greco-Roman world in the eastern part of the empire, it entered a world untrained in the messianic hope. It was therefore forced to restate itself in such forms as would satisfy certain very definite religious needs on the part of perhaps the most complicated social mind which the world has ever seen prior to that of the modern days. The social mind of the eastern or Hellenistic part of the Roman Empire was excluded from political and social expressions by the policy adopted by the Roman conquerors. While there were incidental reforms instituted in various cities of the empire, the religious need of the Greco-Roman life was essentially metaphysical and dramatically mystical. On the one side, there was a need of an absolute God, as over against idolatry. And on the other side, there was the yearning for salvation through union or at least fellowship with this God. The former of these two needs appears everywhere in the philosophical writings, but most characteristically in the Stoic term Logos. The second of these needs is apparent in the rapid spread of the drama-mystery religions with their promise of salvation from evil and death through the union by worship with some god like Osiris or Mithra. When the message of Christian salvation came to this Greco-Roman world, it was immediately found capable of satisfying these two dominant needs of the social mind. What the other religions promised, Christianity, through the course of several hundred years of bitter struggle and persecution, actually supplied to the satisfaction of both the metaphysician and the mystic. The form taken by this satisfaction was the Nicene formula of a God who is metaphysically and substantially one, and yet in terms of experience has manifested himself personally as to come into vital relationship with sinful man. The later discussions of the nature and person of Christ were not superimposed upon the original Christian religion but were the growth of the new exposition of the content of the new doctrine of God. The old conceptions persisted, but were interpreted through new carrying concepts. The Nicene theology so far from being an addition to Christianity was vital Christianity itself functioning in certain definite religious conditions and under the control of the Hellenistic social mind arianism failed not so much because it was finally outlawed as because it did not so express the elemental christian impulse and belief as to satisfy the needs of the greco roman social mind the philosophizing of theologians of the early church never destroyed their christian inheritance by the middle of the second century however the messianic expectation had ceased to be concrete and had become transcendental true There were those like the montanists who fought against this transformation and sought to maintain the messianic drama theology in full literalism but so strong had become the tendency to revalue the messianic program as a philosophy that this more primitive type of christianity was repeatedly relegated to the limbo of heresy notwithstanding the contributions made by tertullian to christian doctrine and vocabulary the line of theological development runs not through him, but through that remarkable group of Alexandrians who made Regula Fidei the basis of a theology by synthesizing the messianic drama with Hellenistic culture. This transition can be observed primarily in two particulars. First, with the disappearance of the hope that the heavenly kingdom would be immediately established the christian teachers passed from the heralding to the rationalizing of their message of deliverance at once they became involved in disputes with representatives of contemporary philosophies all of them profoundly interested in cosmological speculations we have so little first-hand knowledge of men like marcion that it is unsafe to speculate as to what christianity might have become had the church leaders not stood manfully by the messianic outline but it can hardly be doubted that the new religion would have been lost in the swarming gnostic sects the line of defence as laid down by tertullian was implicity itself away with all attempts to produce a mottled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith we desire no further belief, for this is our palmary faith, that there is nothing which we ought to believe besides." Tertullian's final appeal is to Regula Fidei, which is the very quintessence of an unphilosophical, dramatic summary of Christian Messianism. But the Alexandrine teachers chose quite another method. With them, Regula Fidei was final, but it was also defensible philosophically. Accordingly, for centuries the defense proceeded in the way of giving the Messiah a cosmological value. Materials for such redefinition lay close at hand in the New Testament terms Son of God and Logos. In the New Testament usage, the term Son of God was simply a synonym for Messiah, and the Pauline usage by no means served to modify the politico-dramatic expectation of Messianism in the hands of the alexandrine theologians however it passed from the social presuppositions of politics to the even more universal presupposition of generation a study of Justin martyr and origin will enable one to trace this clearly instead of the conquering king we have the incarnate god foretold by the prophets and this doctrine of incarnation which played practically no role whatever in paulinism becomes a central feature of the new interpretation of regulia fidei but the transition from the political to the parental filial presupposition may be seen even before justin in the struggles of docetism to reach a rational christology indeed The dangers inherent in this heresy appear in the Johannine Epistles, where a test of genuine Christian belief is to be seen in the assertion that the Christ has come in the flesh. The question under discussion did not concern the Godhead, but the historical person, Jesus. How could the Son of God be genuinely human? The source of the difficulty in accepting the Hebraic conception of unction is doubtless to be found in the fact that Christianity had passed from the Jewish people, where Messianism in its full content was a religious presupposition, to the Gentile world in which the possibility of incarnation through divine generation was a universally accepted presupposition but even here it will be observed that the transition is from one social presupposition to another from politics to paternity a more genuinely philosophical concept appears in the logos the most significant transition in the history of christology occurred when the logos of cosmological significance was identified with the begotten son of god and the new conception was injected into the old messianic formula of regulia fidei the logos then with justin became the revealer of a new and sacred philosophy this tendency to elevate concrete dramatic expectation into a transcendental philosophical formula reached its culmination when the contest over the Sonship of the Logos passed from the realm of history into the realm of the metaphysics of the Godhead, and the center of interest in the Son became not Jesus, but the second person of the Trinity. Just as the kingdom of God ceased to become a definite social order upon the earth and became a transcendental heaven, did the doctrine of divine sonship pass from the stage of history into the stage of metaphysics. But again, the mold in which the new doctrine was shaped was not in itself metaphysical, but one of social experience. The great discussion of the century that culminated in the Council of Nicaea centered about two terms, eternal generation and persona. We are accustomed to overlook this fact because so much attention came to be centered upon the metaphysical term consubstantial. But consubstantiality was only a marker for the genuine content expressed by the sunship of the Logos through eternal generation rather than creation, and as any fair study of Athanasius will show, it is the expression begotten, not made, which is the real heart of the Nicene Creed. Consubstantiality was a dangerous metaphysical concept blurred by Latin Philistinism used as a shibboleth against Arianism to protect the content of eternal generation. The organon, so to speak, by which eternal generation was rationalized was the legal term suggested by the lawyer Tertullian, persona. While it is true that in the entire Trinitarian controversy the tendency was toward abstraction, it is beyond question that the final decision of the Nicene Council was regarded not as a completely metaphysical, but rather as a dramatic and symbolic expression. The opposition which Athanasius felt to the word consubstantial was largely due to his fear lest the word should involve Christian theology in metaphysical heresies. What he and his party desired was the maintenance of the actual relationship which the figure eternal generation expressed. The appropriation of persona, a term so essential to Roman law, was due to the fact that it connoted something that gave the theological truth a universalized social, that is, forensic, connotation. However metaphysical the language of the disputants in the Aryan controversy, the synthetic rather than the definitive force of the term appears from the well-known expression of augustine to the effect that the word persona is used to express a fact which really transcends formal definition but while thus the messianic term christ lost much of its original content and became metaphysical the entire schema of the christian hope remained unchanged The philosophizing of ecumenical Christianity never affected the dramatic program contained in the old Roman symbol, and even its metaphysical Trinitarianism was self-determined by the analogies of social experience. The ecumenical creeds never passed beyond the relation of the Son to the Father, except as regards the person of Jesus and, somewhat incidentally, in the matter of the procession of the Holy Ghost. And never attempted to reorganize the messianic program as a whole. D. Latin Orthodoxy as Determined by Imperialism. When one passes from ecumenical to Latin theology, the dominance of the original messianic program is at once apparent. Whereas the Greeks, with their constitutional inability to organize politically, turned to the concept of salvation as a gaining of immortality, the Latin world, with its passion for administration and law, undertook to develop the governmental presuppositions which lay back of the primitive Christian hope. Indeed, the history of doctrinal development in the Western world might be described as the construction of a theology on the basis of transcendental politics theology thus advanced parallel with the development of the church as an institution as the christian religion spread westward it carried with itself not only the original messianic conception but also these new formulas so full of religious power it was not merely church authority which prevailed in their acceptance It was a new intellectual and religious harmony. Anything less than a Christ possessed of the divine nature was repudiated by that Western social mind of which Augustine is the epitome and expression. The success of Arianism among certain German tribes simply makes the real progress of generic Christianity more obvious. As all students of institutions would admit, it was really in the west that the roman genius best expressed itself it was in italy gaul and spain that by an epoch-making series of experiments the roman world evolved the imperial idea to the east this idea was carried in terms of officialism but the ancient civilizations were too deeply bedded to be replaced by roman methods and remained a force against which the imperial idea struggled, only to find itself transformed into likeness to Oriental despotism. In the Western world, the imperial idea was really creative. It built up new civilizations and worked itself into the very tissues of a growing new world. Naturally, it was in the Western world that deep religious need was felt of administrative efficiency in religion akin to the political efficiency of the empire. This was especially felt when the empire itself began to weaken, and the only conservative or preservative force in the Western civilization was the church. It was natural, therefore, that Christianity should have still further developed itself in terms of contemporary social efficiency. The Roman Catholic Church was not the invention of this or that man. It was rather the outcome of the union of the vital impulses of Christianity, in part already recognized, with the social mind of the Western world. So thoroughly did it satisfy the need of the region in which the institutions of Rome persisted that, to this day, there is a well-marked social and political, not to mention religious, distinction between the countries which had been thoroughly Romanized and those countries of northern Europe where Roman influence had never triumphed or where Roman institutions were destroyed by unromanized invaders. But Christianity in Western Europe came in contact with another widespread social attitude, the pessimism and distrust of human nature so inevitable in a period when a civilization literally disintegrates before people's eyes. Almost paradoxically, the great religious need which this terrible collapse of civilization engendered was some teaching that could raise men from trust in discredited human nature to trust in an eternal and supreme God. Augustine formulated and fixed this new phase in the Christian religion. His doctrine of sin is, of course, involved in the New Testament, but with him it was systematized in our religion. Christianity was not only organized in terms of liberation from the natural corruption of human nature. but was made to serve the purposes of faith in a God who was greater than his world and was not dependent upon human virtue to bring about his ends. The doctrine of original sin and of God's sovereignty were, therefore, by no means accretions, but the expressions of the vital impulse of Christianity as it brought power and courage to the mind. Of Western Europe. E. Feudalism and Christian Theology. The history of the Middle Ages gains unity as one sees imperialism expressed in the Holy Roman Empire. But so far as Christianity was concerned, this attempt at social order administered by Jesus Christ through his two vicegerents, Emperor and Pope, expressed itself almost entirely within the development of the church itself. There was, however, another creative social mind which was to have powerful influence on the development of Christian thought, feudalism. Feudalism as a creative conception of social relationships is not difficult to state, however much we may fail to understand its origin it is the expression of life subject to definite economic conditions temporary it is true but wherever found pervading all the thinking of its social order christianity came to the world of feudalism with its well-developed message of a triune sovereign god of a savior possessed of the divine nature and of original sin anselm endeavored to think these three together by systematizing the divine method of salvation according to the principles of feudalism the significance of the death of christ though a part of the original message had never been systematized with other christian belief it had been set forth dramatically as sacrifice or ransom such dramatic presentations had been carried over into the church services as the mass But minds dominated by the social conceptions of feudalism and the passion for systems seen in scholasticism could not be content to leave their religion with no connecting thought between salvation from sin and the all-perfect God. Such systematizing was accomplished by Anselm's extension of feudal concepts into the realm of theology as a complement of the inherited doctrines the death of christ was shown by him to be the satisfaction of the honor of god injured by man's sin thus christianity found itself for the first time possessed of complete symmetry While the Anselmic Doctrine of the Atonement never became a part of official orthodoxy in any such sense as did the philosophy of substance and the belief in original sin, it did nonetheless give direction to the development of Christian thought. From his time, Christianity has always seen in the death of Christ something which has made plain to the world the ethical unity of a forgiving sovereign. F. The Nationalistic Social Mind and Theology The period which followed feudalism was essentially a struggle between the imperialistic conception in church and state and the new spirit of monarchy and individualism. The Reformation was far more than a mere theological or even church struggle. It rooted itself in a changing order with new economic, political, and cultural forces. On its religious side, it was an extension into theology of the same forces which were operative in the shaping of our modern state, and conversely, an extension into the course of political development of those spiritual conceptions which give worth to personality. But at this point, we notice the practical completion of another religious development in terms of Roman Catholicism. Just as the Greek church has never markedly advanced beyond the theological development expressed in the ecumenical creeds, so the Latin church stopped its development at the point reached by scholasticism, imperialism, and feudalism. Individual dogmas, it's true, have been added by the Latin church, but they have been little more than formal ratifications of beliefs involved in ecclesiastical imperialism the roman curia in its present struggle with modernism is thoroughly consistent in its insistence that its theologians shall revert to the study of thomas aquinas and this fact makes it plain that the roman church as yet does not propose to be influenced constructively by the new social minds which have created periods since the sixteenth century speaking generally and with due regard for the apparently exceptional situation in France, in those nations which embraced the new monarchical conception born of the new conditions of the 15th and 16th centuries, the development of Christianity has proceeded in terms of Protestantism. Conversely, Protestant theology has been marked by an extension into theology of the monarchical idea as opposed to the imperialistic. This is less true in the case of Luther than in that of Calvin, but the change is obvious in the new interest shown by the sixteenth century in God's sovereignty and in the substitution of the satisfaction of His punitive, that is, sovereign justice, for the satisfaction of His unsatisfied, that is, feudal honor. But such a development has been genetic. Protestantism, notwithstanding its laxity in some of its organizing concepts, has held true to the formulas of ecumenical orthodoxy. The effort of deism to build up a sort of cosmic constitutional monarchy similar to that which was being built up contemporaneously in England is a striking illustration of the impossibility for the social mind to shape up a permanent religious concept that does not embody the fundamental Christian concepts as to God. In its failure to perpetuate the belief that God is in actual control of His world, deism was also an illustration of the fact that the elements of generic Christianity are to be recognized in their capacity so to unite with the dominant social minds as to produce doctrines which satisfy all succeeding social minds. A constitutionally limited God is a religious impossibility for the scientific mind. He must be absolute, or he is not God. G. The Age of Revolutions and Theology The 18th century might be described as the period in which the bourgeois class became dominant in politics through revolution. It followed naturally, therefore, that its influence should be felt in all phases of social life. This can be seen in the rapid extension of commerce, the spread of limited democracy, as well as in the establishment of our present capitalistic system. But quite as clearly it can be seen in the field of religion. The bourgeois social mind had inherited the Protestant theology with its emphasis upon metaphysical matters such as those of free will and foreordination. Its needs, however, were vastly more practical than those which the professional theologians and the higher ecclesiastics could satisfy. There resulted, therefore, from the interplay of Christianity with this new spirit, an emphasis on the atonement largely in commercial terms which was to have much the same influence in religion as the bourgeois movement had exercised in politics for it is to this union that we owe evangelicalism that characteristic type of religious interest which was so evident among churchmen of all christian bodies in the first half of the nineteenth century Centering as it did around the substitutionary atonement, it brought home afresh to a commercial age the vitalizing conception of a divine love that dared to suffer in order to serve. A great and sacrificial conception of God could not fail to find expression in the religious life of the Church. However selfish and commercial certain forms of evangelicalism may appear, however much it has failed to appreciate the inefficiency of aristocratic conceptions in morality, to it are due the abolition of slavery, reforms in prisons, and the care of the insane and of the poor, the establishment of young men's Christian associations, Bible and foreign mission societies, colleges and theological seminaries. Altogether, evangelicalism is to be credited with profoundly ethical sympathies. This bourgeois attitude took two other very different theological directions. On the one side was Unitarianism, in which, like an insurgent bourgeoisie, a respectable humanity, sensitive to its natural rights in the sight of a sovereign God, rose up and repudiated belief in total depravity and, in consequence, the orthodox conceptions of God and Christ. On the other side was Wesleyanism, which became a training school of religious democracy, vital religious experience and aggressive, but not excessively theological, orthodoxy. The subsequent history of these two movements shows clearly which best represented generic Christianity in its relation with the dominant social mind. Wesleyanism and its kindred nonconformist groups live on, possessed of unchecked power of spiritual parentage h the modern social mind at this point we come to the modern world in which tendencies are as yet hardly sufficiently developed to be traced with precision but the religious needs of the dominant social mind are at once apparent trained as we are in scientific thought and surrounded as we are by the forces of an adolescent democracy it is inevitable that we should seek to satisfy religious needs, in accordance with these dominant forces. In the light of the past, it is inevitable that these satisfactions will be gained only on the condition that they first include the vital propagating elements of Christianity rather than some current philosophy, and secondly, that the dominant social mind rather than some counter or fractional or anarchistic social mind be permitted to shape up dramatically rather than metaphysically the formulas of our religious thinking. The latter demand is perhaps a little more clearly organized than the former. We can appreciate the demand of a scientific method and we can formulate, with some precision, the share which democracy must have in our religious development. But the religious thinkers of the day are not yet at one as to what elements of our inherited religion are essential to the continued efficiency of Christianity. This is the end of Chapter 2, Part D, read by John Sherman Winfield, Illinois.